This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Hi, welcome to Ian Weekly, your emergency management podcast. And this week we're talking to Richard Steele. Now Richard is the emergency manager for the John Wayne Airport, also known as SNA Airport, if you take a look at your uh, itinerary if you're flying. And emergency management at an airport is unique, as unique as it comes, the FAA regulations that are there, your regular state regulations that are there, uh, it's a transportation hub, it's a people hub, it's an amazing dynamic atmosphere. And the next time you fly, sit in the airport for a little bit and take a look at how things move and understand that's what emergency managers at airports are dealing with on a regular basis. Is it a plane crash that they have to worry about? Sure. Is it a terrorist attack that they have to worry about? Yep. Is it just a regular person getting into an issue that's going on at the airport? Yeah. So it's very dynamic. So I'm happy to have Richard Steele with me. So Richard, welcome to uh, Ian Weekly. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, you know, we always talk about different aspects of emergency management, you know, Mm -hmm. Hospitals, colleges, obviously municipal issues, right? Mm-hmm. Things like that. Um, but never thought about EM specifically, you know, at an airport. Mm-hmm. So tell me, like, what's your typical day at an airport? So our typical day um, is uh, a lot of preparedness for, and so that that it includes a lot of training, uh, preparedness, uh, exercise, um, getting our folks ready for if we do have uh, an emergency incident at the airport um, to get uh, make sure that they're ready to go um, from all aspects of, you know, incident command post, response, command and control, um, basic first aid, um, AED um, uh, response for our personnel and um, our daily routine, you know, medical aid type of stuff. Um, I've heard from people that if you're going to have a heart attack, the best place to have it is at the airport because we've got <laughs> we got law enforcement and fire uh, on scene all the time because they have to be there for sense, aircraft yeah. emergency response. Um, for me specifically, um, I do a lot of in-class training for our personnel because the airport, we're a city um, within a city. Um, so it's uh, getting law enforcement, fire, and then our own administrative personnel ready for if we have an emergency type incident. So we have federal requirements from the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, and TSA, uh, Transportation Security Administration, um, that requires us to have training, and then we go above and beyond in, in um, certain areas for training and making sure folks are ready. And then just being prepared for um, if we have a natural disaster and we've got the traveling public that's in the terminals, um, having 
uh, emergency supplies ready, a lot of inventory, and a lot of interacting with people, building relationships. So, you know, you're, you said the city was in the city, and I was just thinking about that when we're I'm sitting here, and I mean, I travel a lot, and you go through a place like Chicago or Dulles or Dallas, you know, Dallas Fort Worth, uh, Denver. I mean, these are huge spaces of property, and millions of people, I guess, are passing through their portals. Um, now, you're at a smaller airport now, um, although it's my favorite airport, to be honest with you. Uh, it's called John Wayne or Santa Ana. If you look SNA, if you guys are looking to fly into to John Wayne. And it's a really cool, it's, it's a regional airport, I guess, but it's there's a lot of traffic going through there, and there's commercial traffic landing, and then personal craft are landing, and um, outside of that side of it. But well. How many people walk through your doors, say, on a weekly basis? Um, well, airports, we usually calculated by a million annual passengers. So our uh, our airport, we do 10.6 million annual passengers per year. And to put in perspective, like, you know, your larger air, uh, airports like LAX, they're at about 83, 84 million annual passengers. So they consider us a medium hub airport. But on a daily basis, we can have up to peak times, um, you know, uh, two to 3,000 people in the terminal at one time. And um, so, yeah. Uh, for those of you guys that are flying in from uh, across the country, uh, avoid LAX. You know, <laughs> I, I have nothing against the people that are LAX. You get all fine people, but just, man, that is a, that is a bear of an airport to fly into. <laughs> Or fly out of for that matter. Now, there's been a few weird incidences. When I say weird, weird for the public, probably pretty routine for you guys uh, here. Like, we had a movie star that landed on the wrong runway. <laughs> we, we have a couple planes that just decide not to make the runway and land in the middle of a 405. Uh, even though that the, the plane crashing into the 405 mm. wasn't realistically at your airport yet mm -hmm. but it impacted you what what is yeah. a, an incident response like that look like for somebody as an emergency manager at an airport so each airport might be a little different but but my role um and then the other managers that we have and supervisors that are trained to fill uh, certain roles there's it's um coming to the uh like for that incident it was um setting up a command post so um for an off airport property aircraft accident um, it's, it's not that it's any easier, it just has different objectives and types of dynamics that go along with that. So, um, people thought it was interesting that after that plane crash that about 45 minutes to an hour later, there's planes coming, you know, arriving and departing. Uh, obviously if it was on airport property, we'd have had it closed for a while to do the investigation. Um, but for emergency management, um, at, at the airport, so I, I uh, was actually off that day for that incident, but got the emergency notification on my phone. I was close by, so came in and went directly to our emergency operations center, uh, which we activated, low-level activation. It was a lot of media, um, a lot of communication, maintaining situational awareness, getting the information out to our stakeholders, which are our uh, employees and tenants um, and the airlines, because airlines have to make decisions on flight schedules. Um, we had uh, 15 flights that diverted to other airports, um, and the airport spooled up really quickly on the response. And so all the, all those flights that diverted, they uh, got fuel at the airports they diverted to. And then um, all those flights came in later after the incident was um, uh, secured and the investigation was ongoing. 
Um, so I responded to the EOC, and then I had a, a manager and then actually a director and one of our supervisors go out to the command post, and they thought it was interesting to be on the 405 freeway on a Friday before the 4th of July right. on a command, in a command post. Um, and so we and the EOC, we're um, maintaining situation awareness, and we're kind of the communication conduit from the command post, collecting the information. Um, and disseminate that out to executive management, um, to uh, our tenants, like I said, stakeholders and airlines so that they can make the adjustments to schedule that necessary. Um, and then we also uh, focus on recovery from the in the EOC uh, right out of the gate. We're working on it. We're coordinating to get resources out to the command post. Um, we're looking at the operation of the rest of the airport because, like I said, within about 45 minutes to an hour, airport was back up and running, so we still got passengers coming through, um, flights arriving and departing. So that's kind of how it panned out for that day. Yeah, and for those of you who haven't seen the news coverage or whatever on that on that on that crash, uh, basically the the plane lost power um, and and landed in a spectacular way on the 405, which is one of the busiest freeways uh, in Southern California. Um, and you know, so much so there's the joke is I love you so much that I would drive on the 405 at five o'clock, you know, so that you can tell you how, how, how heavy that is. And, uh, yeah, the plane landed, I mean, lost some, the wing and stuff, but no one died, right? No, no, it was truly, um, miraculous that, um, there were no fatalities on the ground or in the aircraft when they, when they, uh, it was a husband and wife and whenever they hit the center divider of the 405, you can see on camera the the uh, the left wing. Uh, it basically, when it hit the center divider, it just popped and the fuel came out all over the freeway. Right. And we feel like that probably helped them to survive because whenever the fuselage slid up against the, um, well, that'd be the southwest side of the freeway, there was no fire right there around the cockpit, so uh, they were able to get out. And then there was a. I think a Hogue emergency room nurse that just happened to be driving by. An off-duty firefighter. An off-duty, yeah, fire captain. Um, in his flip-flops. In his flip-flops. <laughs> yeah, helped get the pilot and his wife out of the aircraft really quickly. And, you know, we coordinate all the time. I mentioned training earlier with Orange County Fire Authority and then local uh, agencies, Costa Mesa, Newport Beach. Um, and it all came together that day. And we interacted with CHP. They um, set up the perimeter and did a great job in getting things set up, ready for the investigation from the NTSB and FAA when they came in. So, yeah, it was, uh, and, and again, truly miraculous. No fatalities, and the only injuries was the pilot and his wife. So, right, yeah. yeah. And yeah, if you should Google that and, and take a look at that landing because it, it is caught on a security camera, and it's pretty amazing. You know, outside of that, I mean, we, you always plan for the big, plane crash or, or whatever the situation would be. And I know you, I've got to observe a few of the, I guess, the annual exercise that you guys do uh, on the, at the airport. Um, and then you guys have done a few of the active shooter uh, drills on the airport. Walk me through the process of, uh, of planning. Well, so yeah, we, like I said before, the FAA and TSA, they have training requirements. Um, <clears throat> and uh, training and exercise requirements um, that's that's mandatory. So FAA requires all airports to have a uh, triennial, every three years, a full-scale exercise. So that's, um, we have to have at least um, 60 to 70 casualties, uh, volunteers, and then we've got um, uh, fire and 
law enforcement and airport operations and maintenance personnel to respond. There has to be the mobilization for the full scale. Every three years, the, the last one we had, the first AIRX that I had here that we call it, um, we had about 500 attendees. So that's usually your, that's your every three-year drill. And then annually, we're required to do a tabletop exercise for the FA and TSA. So we at least have to do two tabletops um, per year. We go above and beyond, and we have um, incident command post training quarterly at John Wayne. So we bring in all those entities that would have to respond to the command posts and just work through a scenario. Um, planning for those, uh, it's just the coordination, making sure we got the right contact information for folks and building the relationships. And so we put out the word. We have a scenario that um, we come up with. It's usually like current real-world situation, like we did one in June, and it was about uh, if a drone managed to make it over the fence, which oh. is very hard to do. Um, and we did a scenario where if an aircraft struck a drone on final approach and the aircraft landed, how do we walk through that? Um, so that's t uh, uh, our command post training. Like I said, that's more than what's expected from the FAA and TSA. Um, and then we have um, EOC exercises also. So we bring in our EOC personnel for training um, twice a year. And we're going to step that up a little more. We've been enhancing our team. Um, and then we've been taking on about two uh, tabletop exercises per year. We did a joint one with Newport Beach um, Emergency Management last year. It was for air-sea disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, scenario was if an aircraft went down in the Newport Back Bay. And we had a uh, American Airlines pilot uh, captain that flies in out of the airport come in and speak on what does it look like for them if they if they do have to ditch an aircraft and they're helping to get passengers off board, off off the aircraft, and um, you got local law enforcement, fire, public safety personnel responding. Um, but the planning, it's it's anybody that hasn't done it, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, <laughs> we we try to incorporate folks that are part of our EOC that don't do it all the time. So they're part of the planning process and they see how it would work, um, you know, in, in steady state and we have time to plan for it. And it's the same type of things just uh, if during an actual incident, it's just, you know, um, you're running a thousand miles an hour doing right. the same stuff, right? right. So, so, yeah. All right. Well, I want to take a quick break here for a second. But uh, when we come back, I do want to talk about drones and I want to talk about the larger airport, airports for a minute. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter. All right, welcome back from that break. Thank you so much uh, for listening to the sponsors. You know, again, without them, we really can't do what we're doing and, and bringing a quality uh, guy like Richard into the studio here. And and uh, this is, by the way, an in-studio uh, uh, interview not on the phone. I guess you guys can probably tell the difference on the uh, the sound. But, uh, yeah, so we're going to get back here. So, Richard, before we went to the break, uh, I was saying that I wanted to talk a little bit about drones and the bigger airports. But let's go with the bigger airports first. Now, the advantage that you have at John Wayne is John Wayne closes, right? Um, planes don't come in and after whatever time. I think it's 11 o'clock, right? 11 and they don't yeah. take off after 1045 or on there. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. At one time, we're taking off and we're after the 1045 and the pilot comes over the PA and goes, shh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have a good time with it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. By the way, if you ever, ever take off from John Wayne, be, be prepared to be like on a roller coaster. You basically go straight up. Whoosh, 
you know. Yeah. So, but that being said, how does like LaGuardia or, you know, back to O'Hara or, mm-hmm. or LAX for that matter, you know, they're 24 7 operations over there. Right. How do they do an exercise like that where if you're, I mean, you shut down the entire airport to do your exercise or you do it at nighttime? We'll do it at night, yeah. Right. So, uh, and I worked at LAX for, for five years. I was the chief of operations there and worked in the airport response coordination center. So, yeah, I was part of um, training and exercise up there. But, uh, yeah, it's a 24-7 operation, um, and you have to be creative um, there. Uh, fortunately, at larger airports, they usually have more space. So at LAX, we had four runways uh, and all the interconnecting taxiways, parallel taxiways. And then space, um, we would do our, our big full-scale exercise over at the Flight Path Museum, good-sized ramp. Um, and then we would work with TSA and, and airport police to secure the area. That way we could go through the drill and have enough space for everybody. So, so the space helps out. Um, like you mentioned at John Wayne, we um, close at night for uh, noise, noise compatibility, uh, mandatory curfew. And so we do things, and then, and again, I didn't mention earlier, but we go a little above and beyond what's expected from FAA and TSA requirements, and we do an annual active shooter uh, full-scale exercise now. And that includes, uh, like last year, we did the scenario was um, active shooter that came into the terminal to be baggage claim. Um, and we had fire, we had law enforcement doing, um, it was like two exercises in one. Law enforcement doing the, um, engaging a, um, uh, suspect with a weapon in Terminal B, having that real-world scenario using SP tactical equipment. Um, and then on Terminal A, we were running force protection. So law enforcement forming up tactical teams with paramedics from uh, Orange County Fire Authority and, and then also Costa Mesa, Newport Beach Fire uh, assisted with that too. And going in and pulling out patients out of the baggage claim. Um, but yeah, we that, that's one thing that helps from on my end, uh, pl- training, coordinating. When we do something big like that in the public area of the terminals, most airports don't have that opportunity right. because they're always operating. Um, I did go to an active shooter drill at San Francisco Airport to get some ideas a couple years ago, and they did the same thing. They, they have a terminal that shuts down overnight. It's a domestic terminal, um, and about midnight's when they started, but they had... Um, uh, law enforcement uh, uh, tactical teams going down the concourse, um, and you got some passengers. You know, they're there sitting, waiting, sleeping for their flights, and they look up and they're like, "Here's all these guys with weapons, right? right. Uh, going through the terminal. Obviously, safe training zone. That's all um, just um, uh, dummy rounds and stuff. But yeah, that was interesting seeing that happen. So that's a yeah. great way to start your flight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, but you know, we do a lot of, and, and they did too. Um, make it very apparent that it's training exercise. There's controllers with vests on. There's announcements going over the PA system. And even our airport, um, the doors are open all night uh, coming in. So if somebody happens to show up and they get there at 3 o'clock in the morning and they see us running, you know, drills, they have an idea um, that we are doing some training. So and it usually gives people some comfort that we're going to that level to make sure we're prepared, you know, so. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I, people are funny because, like, you know, in general, they, they want us, us to be trained and then, but they don't want us to train when they're up Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And we always take in consideration, we don't want to disrupt uh, 
operations at the airport, the throughput of passengers and vehicle traffic and aircraft. So we, we, we kind of build it in, um, and um, we always get very good reviews and evaluations from folks on the training. And it's a lot of communication, partner with our PIO and local media to let them know because we don't ever want – um, uh, inadvertent call going to 911 right. that there's, you know, uh, active shooter when there's really not because some airports have had that type of stuff happen where there's a stray call and then, you know, we don't want a bunch of resources responding that they don't have to, right? Right. So, yeah. I mean, we have had some um, active shooters at a few airports around the around the country. Uh, mm-hmm. Florida's one, LAX, right, yeah. is, is one. Um, so, I mean, to, to be prepared for that is... is you know, as, as secure as the airports are, there's there's always some, uh, you know, weak points that people try to, to expose, I suppose, or, or use. Mm-hmm. I was um, just reading something about the Brussels attack. You know, where they're where they were going out to, the to the where the passengers were were waiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the, talk about specifically through the checkpoints and stuff like that. I know that's a concern, mm-hmm. um, and, and I know everybody's really working hard on that. But going to the drones. Mm-hmm. So there was a drone attack in Europe. Right, uh, it was in England, I believe. Yeah, it was London Heathrow and Gatwick airports. Yeah, right. both of them. Yep. Until that happened, I I never thought about <laughs> somebody using a like a drone that you buy at the Best Buy to attack an airport. Mm-hmm. So, what can we do? Or I mean, I don't want any secrets, but like, what can <laughs> we do to like like prepare for that or, or stop it? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, technology moves very quickly, um, and fortunately, um, at our airport, um, we have such a forward-thinking law enforcement command staff and and, uh, um, sergeants and uh, uh, SSOs that work there that they're usually pinging me all the time for, hey, let's do a drill on this type of scenario, let's do this. And so, and, and we, we contract with Orange County Sheriffs to provide our law enforcement service. So, um, we, I mentioned before, we do an annual TSA tabletop exercise. And so, we, I, uh, somebody recommended, hey, how about we do a, you know, drone, that very scenario, right? If it gets uh, across the fence and that kind of stuff. And, and I didn't really know a lot of details about how all that would work out either. So, in the past, and we did this tabletop exercise in May of this year, and so part of our exercise design and planning is a lot of learning, too, and research. Um, so um, we got a lot of information and found out, like Huntington, Huntington Beach, um, Irvine, Huntington Beach PD, Irvine PD. Um, Huntington Beach had a, um, their own UAS program established for a few years that they used, various different ways. Um, and then Irvine PD has been doing a lot of research on um, uh, getting one started. And um, we learned from them just uh, what the technology does. And, and um, it's actually quite difficult for someone to try to uh, get a drone across the perimeter fence of an airport. Just due to geofencing, um, the, uh, the, the types of drones that are built out there, about 80, 90% of the main ones that are sold that are um, of concern for us due to the size um, are DJI drones. And the way their um, software and, and app is set up is it won't even allow a, uh, one of their drones to get into the air if you're within um, a mile of the airport. Oh, wow. uh, so if it tries to even penetrate the airspace, it's, gonna, it's not going to go. It's going to go back to wherever the operator is. Or if they're within that one mile, it's not even going to launch. 
So if you own a car, if you own a condo in the in the Newport Back Bay, you just not gonna be able to play with yeah, your phone. Yeah, it won't even. Yeah, it won't even. It won't even launch. So much for that Christmas gift. Yeah, yeah. And then the FAA, because because they control the airspace, they um, really jumped on it about two years ago to bring together a um, basically a task force uh, at headquarters FAA to get a handle on the technology, understand it, and implement a- airspace regulations. And a lot of that was. Um, uh, what drones are sold, the sizes, um, making sure that uh, anybody that purchases a drone or registering those drones, um, and how that's all communicated um, had to be worked out. So initially, the uh, they're called Part 107 pilots. If you're approved to fly a drone, um, they have to register with the FAA, and if they're going to fly, they have to notify the FAA. So it was this kind of challenge between do uh, the operators call the FAA or do they call the airport? And when it first started rolling out, they were like, I was at LAX and there was a lot of calls coming into the airport, which there's a whole lot of other things operationally that we just can't get involved with. And so it uh, went back over to the FAA and so they were taking the calls and then they were able to put together a website uh, or on the FAA website where drone pilots, if they're going to operate and they've been certified part 107, pilots then they um, register it on the website and then it just lets the FAA know that they're going to be in the area. Um, There are some companies out there that have um, detection software so even for our airport we have a a system called AirMap Mm -hmm. and so we can bring up the dashboard and we get alerts on our phones if any uh, drones within a certain uh, amount of square miles. But like I said, if if they, the only way you can really get a drone in is if you uh, bypass the geofencing. You really have to do a lot of, um, have a lot of technical knowledge to try to get a drone over the fence. And what so we these have are here in these the are US. pranksters so. that, that were doing that over in London. Um, no, no, they were they were very knowledgeable, coordinated, um, and and because they kept sending them in. Once um, they'd send in a couple, and the battery life on them was about thirty minutes. Then they would, those would, you know, come back, and then they would send a couple more. And so it was a very strategic, coordinated attack. Um, and it really wasn't even an attack; it was more of a operational disruption, right? Which for airports, obviously, very big. And London Heathrow, being um, the second busiest airport in the world, it obviously had a big uh, disruption. And being around that time of the year, um, around Christmas time, was was a challenge. But um, what's good about our intelligence agency partners like from TSA and then here in the county, Orange County um, Sheriff's Department, their Orange County uh, Intelligence Assessment Center, they learn from each other. So they're able to gain information from, um, from, from London and from those folks. And there's a lot of sharing of information, lessons learned. And so they take that back and then behind the scenes, they're uh, able to uh, implement some procedures and make sure that they're letting us know if they see anything that's uh, happening that could be a threat, right? Oh, great. That's so, yeah. So I, I, when I originally embarked on us doing this tabletop exercise, I didn't know a lot about, you know, how all this would work. And I was concerned about, I, I thought, man, anybody could launch a drone over the perimeter fence, and I'm surprised it hadn't happened before. But it's it's more difficult than what people think, so. Oh, that's good news. Yeah, good news. <laughs> you know, I mean, we hear about the drones um, interfering with uh, rescue helicopters during fire season here because they're yeah. just trying to get... They want they want the footage of the fire, right? I mean, right. you know, and then it gets into the into the way of the helicopters, and we've grounded yeah. helicopters because of yeah. of drones. So, I mean, even even though I'm sure that that 
software is not available or whatever, the stop of the drugs for getting to the airports. So as emergency managers thinking globally with drones, it's yeah. something that we have to now consider yeah. when we do our planning. And, and right now, it's just the sharing of information and learning how it works. Um, one thing that came out of that tabletop exercise we did and when we would take breaks, and I tell people that sometimes those tabletops, you know, the information we're talking about in the environment, the best information that's shared is actually at, at the breaks. That's when people get together and start asking questions. And um, we had a few folks there that were talking about, man, we really should have like kind of a regular meeting like group to kind of talk about this. And so we established um, a uh, UAS uh, collaboration team. And so we've been meeting monthly, and that's local law enforcement fire agencies. Are, we've had two meetings now, and the last one we had uh, 38 representatives that showed up and um, just sharing information, you know, what is this all, how does all this work? And um, it's been really good. So we've been, we've been learning a lot, so. Well, that's great. You know, I, I'm glad that, that the collaboration is going on. And that's, you know, and, and I am blessed to be an emergency manager in, in Orange County, California, because we do collaborate really well together um, out here. And uh, for those of you that are in other parts of the country or the, or the or the world, for that matter, if you guys want to learn more about collaboration, you need to come to Orange County, California, sure. and, yeah. and, and interact with us a little bit to, to learn from that. Big question: mm-hmm. What one thing would you say to all the emergency managers in the world mm-hmm. about emergency management in airports? Um, it's it's very dynamic. So you know, you add the uh, component of this. Um, this throughput of uh, people that are coming through um, an airport, the, the the transient population of, of people, and um, but but it all comes back to building relationships to with the uh, mutual aid responders and those at the airport. Um, so so yeah, that's it, it, that's one thing that remains the same between no matter if you're airport or a local municipality or law enforcement or fire, emergency manager. I mean, building the relationships with those um, that may not be within your organization, but when the bell rings and um, and you need that help, um, you got to know the folks and capabilities that are in your area. So, um, but it, but it, and it moves very quickly. We're big on recovery and business continuity um, because every airport um, is a revenue generator for the local economy. And so um, we focus and work with our law enforcement fire partners um, if there's any kind of an emergency. And then for airports, we start jumping on recovery right off the bat. So um, I was the airport duty manager on shift for the LAX active shooter we had November 1st, 2013. And uh, there we still had aircraft arriving and departing on the south complex. Four runways, two on the north, two on the south. The shooting was on the north, and we still had flight operations. So there was still some business that was taking place. And so a lot of people, it, um, it, it's kind of hard to think about that you have this big emergency crisis disaster going on, and you still got you know people coming in and out of the airport, people coming to the ticket counter, um, uh, boarding flights, getting off flights, and, and, and taking care of them, you know, the mass care that, that comes along with that. So it's very dynamic, moves very quickly when we have incidents. Um, and so, yeah, in, in, the, in the population of people. Um, one thing that um, I've seen a couple times is you have an incident and, and, and you always have people that they manage to check their medication that they need to survive on in their check bag. Right. So when you have an incident 
and now the plane is the you know has to be uh, uh, part of the investigation or you know now these folks are, are struggling with you know hey I you know my, my stuff was on my bag or they had to you know uh, had an uncontrolled evacuation like at LAX for the shooting and they left stuff behind right. and so you know how do you bridge that gap uh, where you've got someone like there that were in the midst of TSA screening process and they hear gunshots and they and they run they have no shoes they have no IDs they have they left their purse and wallet and cell phone behind and they're stranded and they can't get back in because like there it was that terminal was part of an FBI investigation until 10 a.m. the next day and so those are very challenging dynamic situations and what helped us with that was uh, Red Cross um, airlines because the airlines uh, are required and they they do a good job for customer service but um, the um, family assistance support piece of it um, and uh, personal effects reunification family and friends reunification so it's it's just knowing that you can't do it alone and building those relationships that's key right that, that's across the board that's for sure all right toughest question of the day what book, books, or publications do you recommend to people getting in the field of emergency management? Um, I think um, lead, leadership books is, is a lot of what I focus on. I was prior military, and and that that's the core of it. So, um, let's see. Uh, Strengths-Based Leadership is a book that I've um, read in the past. It went through a leadership program through the city of Burbank when I worked at the uh, Burbank Airport. And that's one that I use to reference a lot. And I can't remember the author off the top of my head right now. It's called Strengths-Based Leadership. Um, and it's basically talks a lot about understanding your um, team and, and placing them in positions where they're, uh, they have the drive and the passion for it and then also uh, helps and benefits the organization. And um, uh, that's a good one. And then uh, Servant Leadership, that's another good book. And I'm not good at remembering authors, apparently, but um, that's a, that's a good one too. So it's not leading uh, from the front or leading from behind, but um, but but uh, being right there with the folks that you're working with and, and leading uh, together and getting their input. So those are both really good books. That's awesome. Hmm. Well, Richard, thank you so much for your time this morning, and uh, okay. let's do it again. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks for having me.